3: Monster House presents
1: Monster Talks a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network Home of such shows as Food with Mark Bittman Big Picture Science And Fork in the Road If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com You can enjoy extended commercial-free versions of this show by joining us at patreon.com forward slash monster talk, all one word, M-O-N-S-T-E-R-T-A-L-K. For as little as $2 a month, you can enjoy longer interviews, unbleeped language, and bonus episodes exclusive for patrons. And if $2 a month is not workable for you, but you still want to help out, be sure and leave us a positive review on your podcasting platform of choice. iTunes reviews in particular can help bring in new listeners and your positive reviews really make a difference. If you want to learn other ways to help out, visit monstertalk.org forward slash support, where you can find even more ways to help keep this show going. Thank you to all of you who are supporting us with your hard-earned money and valuable time. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or even exceed your expectations.
2: It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Larkness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster.
1: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
3: And I'm Karen Stoltzner.
1: Welcome back to part two of our Ghost in the Machine time travel series. Now, this story has a lot of dates and details. I mean, it's a time travel story, so that's not surprising. But one of the first questions is, when did this story begin? Now, much of the story you're about to hear happens in the very early parts of the year 2000, but it also may have begun in 1998 on Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM show. On July 29th, 1998, Art Bell did an open lines evening
2: where he invited only time travelers to call in. So there you have it, going to open lines in a moment. Uh, Once again, though, my timeline, my line for time travelers, bear in mind that you must have arrived here and done your time traveling, not uh, mentally, but through some type of actual machine. uh, Fully instrumented... uh, Time machine of some sort. For three hours, various folks dialed in to explain
1: why they were traveling through time. And then, right around the three hour mark, Art reads a fax from someone who claimed all the other callers were wrong. And although he doesn't self identify, many believe this was the first message from a man who later called himself John Teeter, or also Time Travel Zero. Time travel's wacky enough, but if Teeter can be believed, he came back to the year 2000 in a souped-up 1967 Corvette to find an old IBM portable computer and to help save the future from an upcoming Unix clock crisis that was exacerbated by a U.S. Civil War and a limited global nuclear war. But sure, time-traveling Corvettes and 1975 computers will surely fix things right back up. Now, on to part two of our Ghost in the Machine time travel old computer series. Monster dog. Welcome back to part two.
3: I'm still reeling from part one. <laughs>
1: and if you had a reel to reeling, you could record that program for use later on your BBC micro.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Are they still around? Is it the, the kind of thing you can find in antique stores?
1: Well, you can still find BBC micros, but more importantly... The BBC, when they were like commissioning this computer to be created, they sent out specs to a whole bunch of different companies. And the Mm -hmm. company that came out with the strongest candidate, uh, I think there were three, but the one that did this. Is Acorn still around? This is actually a trickier question to answer than I realized. Acorn Computers is out of business, but they have a really big footprint in the field of computer innovation. A company's name may become defunct, yet its technological progeny may thrive and reproduce in their absence for years. Acorns surely left some important innovation seeds around, one in particular that's not only survived, but chances are you own a device running that architecture right now. Acorn was critical in the development of what became known as RISC chips, these reduced instruction set computers Build structures on the chip that perform frequently used high-cost computational functions so that when you program for a RISC processor, you can use those pre-built functions on the chip instead of coding the logic to run in a sort of general-purpose way. In other words, your code can be shorter, yet have the same functionality as a more complex code because the hardware instructions are there for you without the need to write those functions out in software. Risk was a very big topic of discussion in the late 90s, and Apple partnered with Acorn, which led to an entire line of Macintosh that were powered by Risk chips. When it came time to make mobile phones, the lower power consumption and higher functionality profile of RISC chips made them ideal for that class of device. More frequently heard today is the idea of ARM chips, which presently stands for Advanced Risk Machines, but which originally stood for acorn risk machines so even though acorn is defunct as a business its dna is still out there metaphorically speaking powering devices for a huge portion of the human population and that music you just heard was a song called super locomotive which was actually performed on a bbc micro and arranged by martin galway who went on to become quite famous as a commodore 64 musician
3: wow icons apples
1: yeah <laughs> that's right well the one of the computers they commissioned I think was from uh, uh Wales was called the dragon, which is you may oh, recall from our coverage 50. of uh, yeah quite quite so that's kind of fun but uh yeah, so this time travel story, this next one um mm-hmm. is from the very early 2000s, and um. art Bell. Uh, Coast to Coast AM. Mm-hmm. He used to do these little segments where he would invite people to call in. Who you know, like he would do like an episode where it was Ghost to Ghost AM for uh, <laughs> Halloween, and it would be only ghost stories. You had to call in with the true ghost stories that you had experienced. Oh, he did. Um, uh, he would do A- Area Fifty One call-ins. If you work at Area Fifty One, you can call in and tell us what's going on. That kind of thing.
3: Do you think that the the callers? were legitimate that <laughs> so they had worked at areas. I,
1: I would say long. many many of the callers who called in with stories were sincere many of the callers who called in with stories were pulling America's legs <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
3: storytelling
1: I know people who called in and told crazy stories and I've heard people confess to calling in crazy stories
3: yeah I could imagine that going on
1: let's go east of the Rockies you're on coast to coast hi there
2: Hi. Hi, George. Yes, sir. Hi. My name is uh, Gordon. I'm uh, I'm a theoretical physicist. I work at a research facility. Are you working? You're a theoretical physicist. Are you yes. working on anything that you can tell us about? Yes. You are.
0: Um, we're working on portal technology.
2: Now, tell me about that portal technology.
0: I'm afraid See? I I cannot go into. Is this
2: the insurance. ability to travel? Yes. All right. Well, you keep us uh, up to date on this as much as you can. Portal technology.
1: And when he asked for time travel, what do you think he's going to get? Well, you know?
3: That's all you're going to get, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So he asked for time travel stories, and people phone them in. And or considering the time, people would also fax them in, which just is uh, uh, just. Uh,
3: wow. <laughs> I love it.
1: When you listen to these old shows, it's like. Uh, he's talking about fast blast and emails and faxes, and it's faxes that oh, it cracks me up. Well, like, I
3: can't believe to um, this day, though, how many businesses want you to fax things oh. through. And it's just like, well, who has a fax machine?
1: Well, regulatory stuff around medical, that they, they require faxes for things. It kills me. It's like, come mm-hmm. on.
3: Well, come on. Yeah.
1: It's like,
3: <laughs> keep up. Yeah.
1: So yeah. in addition to coast to coast AM, Art Bell also had what they called post to post AM, the forums section on the webpage which is hilarious. And I mean, we've talked about Art Bell before. Uh, mm-hmm. We did a whole episode on that, but uh, Oh, yeah,
3: the favorite one.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean I I love old radio shows like that and we talked mm-hmm. about um Long John Nebel and some of the history of UFO radio and that sort of stuff. But but with with Bell um These uh, time travel stories uh, And these posts on the forum They were generally Like I say, they're wacky and they're not consistent Mm. But This guy calling himself Time travel zero And Mm. later called himself John Teeter Or John Titor, I've heard it said both ways But T-I-T-O-R I'm going to say Teeter, but I'm spelling It's T-I-T-O-R John Teeter Claims that he Uh was from a future where America had a civil war in 2015. I think uh, it starts like in the early 2000s, like 2005, and ends around 2015, and then there's a, a nuclear war. He's from the future where it's after the nuclear war, and you know America sort of disintegrated into... Uh, a much smaller version of itself, and the world's having a lot of problems and he 's on a special time travel mission to come back and get an i b m fifty one hundred portable computer
3: <laughs>
1: now it is it is a sexy machine, I have yeah. to admit
3: <laughs> very special mission
1: <laughs> it is it, you know, and he posts information about his time travel vehicle like how it's put together what it looks like he posts pictures of it uh part of it looks like it's part of a car it's got you know it's got a seat apparently he has to be inside a vehicle because the time travel equipment is quite heavy Mm. so he could drive around and he needs to be physically located where his destination is going to be when he time travels and then the time travel uses a dual micro singularity engine in order to Navigate through the multiverse, and then the further away you get, yeah, you know, and in (laughs)
3: English, that means
1: (laughs) it means he believes that they created two tiny black holes that can be held and used to navigate forward and backwards in time, and so it's all Hmm. part of this big piece of equipment. Um, and it involves gravity. Micro singularities, like and it's got limits too. You can only go to like anybody come in. The whole thing that gets him fired up is like he's people reporting from beyond 2500 AD, and mm-hmm. he says, Well, that's not real because everybody knows that if you try to get past like I think it was like 2536, you can't because uh, nothing's there, like it's just a dead space, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Everyone knows. <laughs>
1: But he's coming back specifically to get this i b m fifty one hundred computer which is tied to something called the twenty thirty eight problem and that's a real thing um yeah, which isn't has that to do kind of like the y two k y
3: two k yes
1: yeah, yeah. And everything being
3: y two so- k compliant and i remember yeah. that yeah
1: right right we we what it is is if you have eight bit or sixteen bit, well, really sixteen bits. What we're probably looking at a, a computer with with uh, running on Unix time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that basically Unix time measures how many seconds have passed since January first, nineteen seventy. Okay.
3: Okay.
1: And and sixteen bits is how much, uh, how wide the memory register is, if you will, okay. and. There's a point where the time, the number of seconds you have to track, is going to be a number that is larger than that 16-bit register. So when that 16 bits gets filled up, it's called an overflow error. And computers behave poorly when they are trying to write to a register and it's full.
3: (laughs) Okay, so this is a real problem.
1: It is a real thing. Now, in the year 2038... That register is going to fill up and and overflow. So, if you're running a 16-bit machine, in in 15 years, is that right? Oh,
3: oh, I don't even want to think about that.
1: Yeah, it's far in the future, in the the mysterious future of 15 years from now. Uh, And it's plausible there'll still be systems affected, but I imagine as we get closer and closer to 238, more and more machines. Well, they will, but the easiest solution is switch to a 64-bit architecture. Uh, because then you suddenly have, you know, billions and billions of seconds to deal with. Right? <laughs> you it will be it'll be, you know, thousands of years in the future. I'm probably saying that wrong, but it's a long, 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 long way if right. you can uh, switch to a bigger register. So, it's not it's not it's not a di- additive. It's exponential. So going from <laughs> sixty to thirty two and thirty two to sixty four is massive differences mm-hmm. at, at the exponent level. So. One of the best things about doing Monster Talk is that when I discover something I didn't know, I can share it with an audience instead of my long-suffering family. As you may have heard me mention, one of my many passions is understanding technological innovation. Because of the rapid developments of computers, they're a bit like fruit flies. Scientists study fruit flies because in their quick generations, you can see patterns of biology emerging that might take hundreds or thousands of years to see in more slow-lived life forms such as large mammals. The field of computing similarly lets you look at rapidly emerging patterns of innovation and economics all sped up, and I've spent at least a decade studying and researching these patterns. But as Donald Rumsfeld once alluded, it's the unknown unknowns, the things you don't know but aren't aware that you don't know, that sneak up on you. I had a big old hole in my computer history knowledge I didn't even realize until I got laid bare while preparing this episode. At the heart of these two stories of computers and time manipulation are old computers. The BBC Micro we talked about in the first half of this was an 8-bit machine. And because it hails from 1975, I thought that the second machine we'll be talking about, the IBM 5100 Portable, would also be an 8-bit machine. But it wasn't. When we talk about these 8-bit and 16-bit systems, what we're talking about is the width of the data bus, which is to say, if you were to think of each click of a computer cycle. So that's how much data could be manipulated at one time. So since computers deal with numbers, you can think of a full bus as what would be the value if every register were filled with ones. So the difference between an empty register and a full one can be a number represented by decimal values, where the 8-bit, 16-bit, and 32 turn into shockingly large numbers. So here's some quick examples of comparing binary values to decimal. So an 8-bit bus... Can handle numbers from zero to 255 at once per clock cycle right so a 16-bit bus can handle numbers from 0 to 65,536 as you can see that number is significantly larger a 32-bit bus can handle numbers from 0 to 4 billion 294 million nine hundred and the now ubiquitous 64-bit bus which you probably are using at home can handle numbers from 0 to 18,446,744,073,709,551,615. The point is, there's a big difference between these bus sizes and the amount of processing bandwidth for each new standard is staggeringly exponentially more expansive. And keep in mind that the architecture might not match the operating system. For example, some people install 32-bit operating systems on a 64-bit piece of hardware, and there's sometimes good reasons for that, but that's out of scope for this insert. So, the big realization that I had was that 16-bit and 8-bit architectures by the mid-1970s are really more of a design choice than a major innovation. The IBM 5100 that we'll be discussing in this segment has a 16-bit bus, but at the exact same time, the Intel 8080 chip, the one that will become the basis for many early PCs, ends up being an 8-bit chip. Motorola 6800 is an 8-bit chip. Chuck Peddle's MOS6502, which is really common in old PCs, uh, was an 8-bit chip. And the IBM PC ends up using the 8-bit 8088 chip. But the Intel chip before that, the 8086, had a 16-bit chip design. So... What I learned and should have known is that 16-bit buses existed simultaneously, but weren't yet embraced by the industry. As memory and storage capacity increased and prices dropped, 16-bit eventually replaces 8-bit, and then 32- and 64-bit buses become truly required to make modern computing work the way we expect. Anyway, the main thing is my original idea of calling this two-part episode 8-bit time travelers, which I loved became inappropriate when I learned that 16-bit computing existed in the form of a portable computer in 1975. But 8-bit time travelers is still a really cool name for a synthwave band, so somebody get on
0: that. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too?
2: Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon.
3: So really um, not much of a problem. No, no,
1: no, Pro- probably not to the point that you need to time travel back to the 90s. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, but uh, such an interesting theory.
1: It is, and, and, and what happens is Teeter's posting all these things. Uh, he's making predictions. He's telling this exciting story about civil war and how, you know, when he was a teenager, he had to, like, join these military units and fight. He's talking about the, you know, multiverse uh theory of physics he's talking about micro black holes it's interesting stuff and he tries to be vague enough that is plausible and sci-fi and makes Mm. predictions that are scary (laughs) and hard to falsify right
3: right did he write a book then
1: Yes. Well, someone did. Uh, (laughs) Again, John Titor is also a pseudonym because Mm. you know time travel. Mm.
3: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Mm. Oh,
1: but he writes. uh, Okay, so spoilers, right? Um, A lot of people were really curious. First of all, is he real? Is he serious? Where is he from? You know, who might he be? The future. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a there's a, a web, I, I guess, a, a video channel called The Hoax Hunter, uh, a guy named John Houston who does skeptical mm-hmm. investigations into this sort of thing. He and he does a bunch of looking into it. In 2009, he posts a report saying he believes that John Titor is a character created by a guy named Larry Haber, who's mm-hmm. an a, a, a entertainment lawyer, and there's sort of a time travel foundation that's been created and uh houston tracks down all the business stuff you know like re, you know finding out who registered the license who registered the domains all that kind of stuff here's the thing that this whole story involved not just time travel and sort of this creative narrative about you know world war and all these sort of uh sci-fi adventure tropes mm-hmm. but it also had a bunch of information about technology and computing and so Uh, The question, you know, does it make sense that this lawyer would know enough to do this? But it turns out that his brother is apparently a longtime IT computer scientist type person. Uh, So Mm. he is like it could have been collaboration between the two of them or maybe someone else as well.
3: Did they ever come forward and respond to the Mm. accusations?
1: Right. No, to my knowledge, they have not. But they also let the – at one point they had – Registered John Titor as a uh, trademark with the, uh, tra- the USPTO, and mm. um, that has been let go. It's abandoned. So if maybe if they are behind it, maybe they just didn't get enough money out of it to keep it going. And it, sure. it, it is pot- yeah. a lot of stuff's happened since then, right? Mm. That was mm-hmm. uh, you know that was 2009 when he did that uncovering, uh, and oh, another person that may have been involved. This is I think a little bit more interesting. Is there's this guy named uh, Joseph Matheny or Matheny, and he is one of the co creators of a really, really weird thing that maybe we could talk about on a different episode Mm -hmm. called Ong's Hat, which is both a place uh, in New Jersey, but it's also a collaborative fictional. I don't know ecosystem. Okay. Um, there's there's other things like this, but basically, it's it was sort of it's kind of a game, it's kind uh-huh. of a website, it's kind of a collection of stories, mm. so a shared world, if you will, and mm. it's it's uh it's quite interesting, and so he he seems like a good candidate to have participated. Right. And At one point uh, during you know someone he said at one point on the record he said John Titor quote is a story that was created as a literary experiment by people who were observing what I was doing with Ong's hat, and these people wanted something like that. So I was a consultant on the project, but it wasn't my project.
3: Okay.
1: That sounds extraordinarily plausible to me.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Wow, I mean, this just gets more and more in-depth and involved.
1: It does. And, And then at some point, John Titor says that he's going back And won't be staying, you know, he leaves some sort of clues about what the future holds and, Mm -hmm. you know, here's the, I I find this kind of well-meaning, his -hmm. departing advice is not like, here's what's going to happen in the future, because, you know, he's going off to try to fix things, so maybe things will change.
3: That's right, good point. (laughs)
1: When Teeter was posting in the year 2000, he sent out a list of 10 pieces of advice for people who want to prepare for the future. It's interesting to note that the advice he gives, some of it's timeless, and some of it seems very specifically focused around news issues of the time, like mad cow disease and HIV AIDS. Here's his list of 10 pieces of advice for those who want to prepare for the future. Number one, do not eat or use products from any animal that is fed and eats parts from its own dead. Number two, do not kiss or have intimate relations with anyone you don't know. Number three, learn basic sanitation and water purification. Number four, be comfortable around firearms. Learn to shoot and clean a gun. Number five, get a good first aid kit and learn to use it. Number six, find five people within 100 miles that you trust with your life and stay in contact with them. Number seven, get a copy of the U.S. Constitution and read it. Number eight, eat less. Number nine, get a bicycle and two sets of spare tires. Ride it at least 10 miles a week. And number 10, consider what you would bring with you if you had to leave your home in 10 minutes and never return. So a lot of that's classic advice for, you know, have a bug out kit in case there's an emergency. Those are fairly good pieces of advice. Number one and number two specifically seem like they're pulled from the headlines of the year 2000.
3: Yeah, it's, well, it sounds like Advice. it's kind of well. some of it, the kind of stuff you're told to do in uh, California in case there's a massive earthquake or, or that yes. kind of survivor man mentality as well.
1: Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it, it's well-written stuff. I mean, it's the internet forum stuff, but mm-hmm. it's, it's er, it is early 2000s, but it's still – it's well put together and – it exists in this ecosystem of Art Bell forum posts, which is just full of other interesting things. If you – I don't believe any of it, but I think it's fun to read. <laughs> he was a caller to the show. No, he was not. I don't think oh. – or at least I was I was never able to find it, But it was so popular, Art would read some of the stuff online. In fact, we can put a clip in here of Art actually reading one of these John Titor faxes, uh, which I, I think is really interesting.
2: Well, all right, Uh, that's it. We will continue to take time calls, time traveler calls tonight. Dear Art, I had to fax when I heard other time travelers calling in from any time past the year 2500 A.D. Please let me explain. Time travel was invented in 2034. Offshoots of certain Successful fusion reactor research allowed scientists at CERN to produce the world's first contained singularity engine. The basic design involves rotating singularities inside a magnetic field. By altering the speed and direction of rotation, you can travel both forward and backward in time. Time itself can be understood in terms of connected lines. When you go back in time, you travel on your original timeline. When you turn the singularity engine off, a new timeline is created due to the fact that you and your time machine are now there. In other words, a new universe is created. To get back to your original line, you must travel a split second farther back and immediately throw the engine into forward without turning it off. Some interesting outcomes of this are... One, you meet yourself. I have done it often, even taken a younger version of myself along for a few rides before returning myself to the new timeline and going back to mine. Two, you can alter history in the new universe that you have just created. Most of the time, the changes are subtle. Sometimes, I'll notice car models that don't exist or books that come out late. The oldest one was a skyscraper that wasn't built in a near-favorite store of mine in New York. Interestingly, when you travel in time, you must compensate for the orbit of the Earth. Since the time machine doesn't move, you have to adjust the engine so you remain on the planet when you turn it off. Unfortunately, it was also discovered that anyone going forward in time from my 2036 hit a brick wall in the year 2564. Everyone who has ever been there has reported, has reported that nothing exists. When the machine is turned off, you find yourself surrounded by blackness and silence. Whew. Now, most time travelers are trying to find out where the line went bad by going into the past creating a new universe, and proceeding forward to see if the same thing results in 2564. It appears the line went bad around the year 2000. I'm here now, in this time, to test a few theories of mine before going forward. Now, for the future, you might want to know about. 1. Y2K is a disaster. Many people die on the highways when they freeze to death trying to get to warmer weather. Two, the government tries to keep power by instituting martial law, but all of it collapses when their efforts to bring the power back up fail. Three, a power facility in Denver is able to restart itself, but is mobbed by hundreds of thousands of people and destroyed. This convinces most that maybe we shouldn't bring the old system back up. Four. A few years later, communal government system is developed after the Constitution takes a few twists. China retakes Taiwan. Israel wins the largest battle for their life, and Russia is covered in nuclear snow from their collapsed reactors. Art, the reason I'm here now is because I believe a nuclear weapon set off by Iraq in the Middle East war with Israel might have something to do with the damaged timeline. I will test that theory and get back to you. Please pray that we discover the reason why there is no apparent future after 2564. So I couldn't resist. I thought that was quite a good fax. There you have it. East of the Rockies, you're on the air.
3: Cool, and I wonder why he was never invited on the show or if they couldn't track him down or?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, that's a really good question and I Mm. probably should know the answer. If I can find the answer, I'll put an insert here. My my guess would be though he's probably avoiding getting his voice on recording to be identified. Because, sure, yeah, he doesn't want to be identified by anything, and uh, and I believe that that is both a good like like that's a perfectly good justification if you're trying to protect a hoax.
3: Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. also
1: a perfectly good justification if you're trying to save the timeline and don't want someone to go kill your mother before you're born. That kind of thing. either so,
3: way, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back to the future. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, either way that works. It is so bizarre. Again, an- another amazing and strange story.
1: Yeah. You know, I should check on one thing, and uh, before we go, uh, hold on just a second. And that is the, uh, I don't, I forgot to pull up the specs for the IBM 5100, BM 5100. It was a portable computer, which it was luggable, um, and, uh, 16K of RAM. That's not bad. Honestly, it was 1.9 megahertz, 16K of RAM. Um, and it had a five inch CRT.
3: It's a powerful for it, its time.
1: It was that it, here's the catch. It's a portable computer from 1975. Wow. So it, older it's older
3: than me.
1: Yeah, it's it, uh, and it cost a lot. Like, it costs like a, a bare bones model was 9000 oh, bucks, and a fully wow. loaded one was like $20,000 in oh, 1975. These people these really needed to play Zork. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, i have to have eliza and i have to have it now i don't i don't know it's <laughs>
3: and some serious money wow i mean okay. yeah i would imagine it would just be businesses and i mean yeah how much are these things worth now
1: you know what i it might be valuable historically but i doubt it's hmm. worth twenty thousand bucks i don't know
3: I mean John Tor, remember put into
1: it. I mean John Tor, they probably spent millions to get him back in time to pick up a copy.
3: Now I tell you one thing that
1: I find interesting. They say (laughs) in the specs, they said it was based on a sixteen bit processor called the Palm, which is a program all logic and microcode. Mm -hmm. It's astonishing to me that there was a sixteen bit processor in a portable computer in nineteen seventy five. That sounds like time travel itself, honestly.
3: Pretty impressive.
1: but, you know, much like the uh, the Alto, uh, which was the f- first graphical computer produced by uh, Xerox, they were beautiful machines, and they, they would have been comparable to what we would see on a Macintosh by, like, 1986. Mm-hmm. But they're being produced in the early 1970s, but they cost, like, $10,000 a piece. Wow. You know, so, yeah, it's $10,000 in, you know, 1975. I mean, uh
3: Yeah. <laughs> Way too today.
1: So, wow, so it's, a well, bit, it's a bit pricey, but
3: <laughs> totally. But it must have been worth it to, to some people to buy. I mean, there must have been a market. Yeah, too,
1: yeah, right? there must have been a, a reason for them, and I, I'm, I, I don't know how many they ever sold. But uh, it is it is it, it supported a, a, the ability to run APL, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, an IBM mainframe language, and it, you know, so if you're gonna if you're going to say your time traveler is coming back for a rare computer that's special somehow, I mm-hmm. believe that one of the things that did it had dual modes and one of the modes, um, it, these, I, I think some of the sort of justification for why it might've been useful, mm-hmm. uh, was a, about this idea that it, it, it could have been used to debug programs in the future that were actually tied to the past. Oh, but I see. I, so you need an old thing to work, but, but here. What have we learned? If we've learned nothing from touring, I mean, we should at least learn that any machine that's touring complete Mm -hmm. is also capable of being emulated on a more powerful machine, which Mm -hmm. is why you can, even though 8-bit computers and some of these 16-bit things may not be available right now, they can all be emulated on more modern machines. That's why mm. you can still you can still play eight bit games, and you can still play sixteen bit games. You can still play thirty two bit games, even if you're using a sixty four bit computer. So emulation suggests that this would not have been necessary to spend billions of dollars on a time traveler uh, mm-hmm. to get this machine.
3: Yeah, if, if we're st- <laughs> that would ruin a good story.
1: It's hard to falsify, right? Yeah, it would. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean. I think
1: maybe some of the best evidence that we don't have time travel is that nobody attended Stephen Hawking's time traveller party. are you have you heard about this? I haven't there's a There's a famous photo of Stephen Hawking sitting in a room with balloons and everybody around him, but it, but 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 there's no people but Stephen Hawking. He threw a time traveler party and then did not send out the invites until after the party was over. Uh. <laughs> that way. People could come back and go to the party,
3: so. right? <laughs> and I have updated photos,
1: right? But nobody, nobody showed up. That's oh, too bad. Oh. <laughs>
3: uh, so well now, are you going to for this episode to read out some of those predictions as well? Because you've got these lists down here.
1: That's a great idea. I'll insert some of his predictions. Some of them came true. Some of them didn't, and I'll. I'll I think we should comment on that. So the first, he claimed CERN would create miniature black holes in 2001. That's one of his predictions.
3: Okay, so that didn't happen.
1: To the best of our knowledge, did not happen. Although when they were going to flip that machine on, a lot of people went nuts, saying that they were going to destroy the world. Mm-hmm. It, it, there were there were. I don't think any of the scientists really thought that was plausible at all. Mm-hmm. But it was on numerous, you know, blogs. Uh, radio shows, television shows worried about what would happen. And, you know, people are always afraid of big technology. So,
3: Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, Um, kind of reminds me of uh, psychic predictions for the forthcoming year and then to go back and reflect on those and see what did happen and what didn't happen.
1: Exactly, and of course, it, the big one I guess was he said there was going to be a civil war in two thousand five, and then that didn't happen until twenty sixteen. So yeah,
3: uh... yeah, yeah. that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. <laughs> so he was a couple of years out. Maybe when he went back in time, he threw out the yeah. timeline or something.
1: <laughs> it's it's like a Terminator two where they 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 don't stop it; they just shift it a little bit.
3: <laughs> yes, yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah, he he his last post was March twenty fourth, two thousand one. But, again, uh, the main thing, though, there is, you know, he signed off and then uh, effectively was never heard from again, except uh, through the book, John Titor, Time Traveler. There was a documentary a few years later. Um, and, of course, that sudden interest in the IBM 5100, which I think just sort of spiked and just disappeared. You know, those old computers are still worth keeping running, and I certainly do my share over here at my house. And
3: Yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you for your service. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> anyway, that so that's the John Titor story in a nutshell. Uh, is there anything to it? Is it is it plausible? Mm.
3: No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is a, but they it were another fun. ripping yeah. yarn.
1: <laughs> it is another ripping yarn. I don't I don't I saw nothing in the story that seemed worth believing in. I mean oh. the, the the predictions were vague enough. You know they could have, but wherever there was dates and and, and certitude, mm-hmm. reality has not comported with those.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, I just think it's really interesting that this uh, what well, the hoax hunter had gone and done this research and has pointed the finger at this uh, lawyer and uh, what his brother, a computer scientist. They sound like a likely pair.
1: I don't know if they're still. I, it seems like they would not be able to still be making money from it, except maybe from the books. And I don't know if that's for a corporate. I didn't check to see if that book had a, a an author who was a human or a, an author who was a corporation, and that matters, yeah. you know.
3: I just don't know how much you could make from this. It sounds like it was really no. popular in the day, but uh, that I don't know if it would have been a, much of a money maker.
1: Exactly, and these things tend to like go in cycles. But a lot of these are like flash in the pan. There's a mm. minute when everybody's talking, and if you can cash, great. But if you can't, you're too bad. Like yeah. I'm really surprised Ken Webster was able to get another reprint out, but I'm glad he did because the paperback had gotten to be like 500 bucks, which is a little not oh. nobody was nobody was paying 500 like bucks an for al- it,
3: academic but, book.
1: <laughs> well, al- algorithms had driven the price up because it was rare, and now with mm. the reprint, it's back down into the quite reasonable price. Ooh.
3: Yeah, I mean, it must, must have been some interest in it. And uh, same for, for this book as well, for John Tito. Story.
1: Exactly. Well, I, I, I'm a little mad right now that the IBM 5100 is causing me to have to retitle this show.
3: But anyway, I, I thought
1: these are two interesting stories. In, if, if you think about it. Um, yes.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'm so glad that you've done all of this research. Really appreciate you exploring this because I just wasn't aware of these stories. And uh, I, I wonder how many of our readers are familiar with these tales.
1: Yeah. And we'll put links. I mean, if you want to read more, obviously there's thousands and thousands of pages that can be read. If you go back to the old forums and if you go to these books and, and, and watch, you can watch documentaries about these things. Um, and they're fun. I mean, they are, I think they're relatively harmless.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, but I'm still well, not surprised that you've said some people believe in this still.
1: They absolutely do. There are some very fervent believers in all of this stuff, but you know what? Um, the world's a big old place and if you mm-hmm. if you want to use if you want to use critical thinking and logic and reason and science and evidence, these stories fall flat.
3: they don't hold up yeah but, but it's still a fun tale
1: they are a fun tale and if you uh, just like crazy stories these stories Mm -hmm. are wild wild rides they are wild rides oh yeah
3: definitely fit that profile (laughs) uh really really cool to hear about these and uh look forward to getting some feedback from our listeners too
2: yeah but the
1: main thing is for our listeners again uh old computers don't give you time travel they they don't give you ghosts just hold on to them, take care of them. They won't last forever, but keep them going while you can. That's yeah. it. Wait, that may not all be the not message be I'm supposed to be giving. Worth <laughs>
3: too much money in the future, but this is just how
1: I'm justifying all my old computer equipment. Yeah, you don't need to. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I, I think these are interesting stories, and I remember both of them when they were sort of at their peak, you know, in the public. And so I, they're still fond uh, memories, yeah. but I, I have enjoyed like looking into them and sort of seeing it you know i when i first heard them i was more gullible and younger but uh uh the first one especially the the, the bbc micro story always seemed like a fun time travel ghost story and that's an interesting yes. mix uh it, the it, John it, it is. yeah technology
3: and, and, and ghost lore it's a strange absolutely. combination
1: old houses and linguistics and yeah. the old oh, bookies yeah. and so-
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then People from the future and consciousness and traveling and, uh, yeah, so many things. So, well. Yeah,
3: someone's got a great imagination.
1: They really do. Anyway, (laughs) we'll be back again in another week with more Monster Talk. So thanks for listening. As
3: always. (laughs) Thanks, Blake, for all of your hard work.
1: (laughs) Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
3: And I'm Karen Stoltzner.
1: You just heard a discussion about the self-proclaimed time travel soldier known as John Teeter, who says he came back from the 2030s to save us from a dark future where our computer clocks might stop working. I still like the story, but if a time traveler came back to the year 2000 from the 2030s, it seems like a mention of, oh, I don't know, 9-11, covid global climate change, or any number of massively useful details from the future might have been better than what we actually get. But then again, I'm skeptical and I don't get to have fun like the other kids. I'm kidding. Of course, we have lots of fun putting this show together. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, We now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. And as you cruise through the time stream in your 60s muscle car, you could listen to almost anything, but you picked Monster Talk. And for that, we thank you.